0: Time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Addis? More talking truth about America.
1: And welcome back to America Can We Talk, my Right View Roundtable tonight. I have Mari Salva and Jenny McGarry here, and we always at the top of the second hour have our Right View Roundtable question. Tonight I want to ask the ladies what you think. You know, we had just last night here in the United States of America, we had the uh, White House Correspondence Dinner, which is an annual tradition in Washington. And uh, Trump, President Trump, declined to attend. He had told them way ahead of time that uh, he wasn't going to come. And what he actually did instead was he held a rally, and he held a rally at the Pennsylvania Farm Show Complex and Expo Center, such a heartland of America choice, you know, just a— Everyday person choice, huge rally, lots of people, and so the White House Correspondence Center was usually uh, persi- consists of poking the president, making fun of him. They had to do it without him there. So I guess my question is: Was that a mistake? I mean, he has such a bad relationship with the media. Should he have just gone, or is it was he smart to skip it? And like, what's your takeaway about the? And and they spent the evening pillorying him, which he would have done whether he was there or not. But was that that a bad move?
2: No, it's another Trump brilliant move, and I like the question he asked in Pennsylvania. Let's rate the media on their 100 days. Go for it, Donald! <laughs> yes! Yes! Okay, here's the thing. American people are concerned about the direction of the country. We know we are being led over the cliff. Uh, we're headed in the wrong direction. Our children's future is at risk. And Donald Trump is a straight talker that talks right to all American people about what we need to do or t- to turn our country around. The media is—they are in the front ranks with the Dems. They— suppress information. They are not doing what they're supposed to do, which is to protect the American people from the excesses of government. They're all And just for, report factually, yeah. Exactly. And so I am all for Trump taking it to the media because they are part of the big problem. We can't solve problems if the American people don't know what the problems are because the media hides it. And we will not go quietly into the night. The American <laughs> people Amen. are strong and they will protect their children's future. And that's why Trump was elected.
3: Absolutely. I agree. One hundred and ten percent. The question I have is, did anybody really pay attention to it outside of the other media by other media outlets? (laughs) I don't think anybody even watched it. I mean, I I didn't talk to anybody that watched it. And um, there was an article in CNN where basically the gentleman wrote and I couldn't believe it was in CNN. I had to read the whole thing to make sure that it was. And of course, in the end, he trashed Trump. But he did say. The correspondence dinner is awful. It's an evening of self-congratulations, bad jokes, and political bias where Dems get to praise themselves and Republicans get to be lampooned. And that's about right. I mean, you know, it it is absolutely true. Why go? What what was the point? There is a media bias. Another thing he says in the article is at one point – you know, we had a media that was reporting the war, and now we have media that feel that they are soldiers in the war. And that's not the way it, it's supposed to work.
1: Yep, yeah. I loved it. I have to say it's very interesting. Um, there was a poll that came out right before this. Uh, there was a correspondence dinner, and the same—first exa- of all, <laughs> it's a funny thing. The correspondence dinner happened, and exactly at the time it started, Trump started speaking at this rally— Making everyone think who's at the dinner, should I be covering this rally? I know, (laughs) exactly. But this great (laughs) poll came out on the eve of his 100th day in office, and this is from uh, the Morning Consult, like Mm C-O-N-S-U-L-T. It's actually very reputable. Morning Consult found that more voters trust the president than the reporters covering his administration on a daily basis. Here are the numbers. 37% of voters believe the White House has been more forthright than the media versus 29% who think the press has been better, and 34% didn't know. So the highest category, 37%, said they believe Trump more than the media. Okay, this is what's getting under the media's skin, is they are used to being unquestioned. Exactly. They're used to saying, we tell you what to think, exactly what matters, what doesn't, and and you just salute. So I think that that poll really got under their skin. Um, And I also just, you know, I have to say what I used to think has changed recently. I used to kind of think the media knew they were biased but they didn't care that they just had an agenda and that they that you know they just they thought it was so right and so correct that they, that justified bias and misleading reporting and leaving things out and emphasizing things that didn't deserve emphasis but I've recently started to realize that some of them They actually don't even know they're biased. They are so immersed in their bias, they think they're reporting truth. And so they could see truth right in front of them, and they can't process it because it's outside their worldview. I think the media, so many, have sunk so low, they actually don't know the difference. And the last thing I loved about Trump doing this is that um, this White House um, press corps big dinner thing— It's been going on forever, and and I don't know how many years, but many, many. Reagan missed it in 1981 because he's recovering from being shot. But no one else, even Republicans, they'll go to it even though they know they're going to be criticized, mocked, maligned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and and they go anyway. I kind of like Trump just saying, you know what? I don't care if this is a tradition. I don't care what's happened in the past. I got elected by the people, not the media. I'm going to keep on talking to the people instead of the media. I think his voters loved it. I think his supporters did. And the media kind of got what they deserve. This is Debbie George Addis, America, can we talk? Don't go away.
4: Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and if necessary legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit firstliberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans. In the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's firstliberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to firstliberty.org now. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. The National Center for Policy Analysis brings together the best and brightest minds to tackle the country's most difficult public policy problems in healthcare, taxes, retirement, education, energy, and now national security. The NCPA works to develop and promote private free market alternatives to government regulation and control, solving problems by relying on the strength of competition and the private sector. As America's think tank, the NCPA wants to make sure you have access to simple, clear solutions to the issues that matter to you. Come get to know the NCPA at one of their events and join the conversation by following them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. To get policy solutions delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for the NCPA free email newsletter or subscribe to one of their policy blogs. To get involved with America's think tank, go online today to ncpa.org. The NCPA would love your support and you'll love being part of the solutions to America's challenges. So go to ncpa.org. That's ncpa.org.
6: Welcome
1: back. I'm Debbie George Addis. My happy round table here, Jane McGarry and Mary Sullivan. Okay. We do. I do want to turn and talk in just a minute about the climate March yesterday. Um, I missed it, but before I do back to our, you know, we top of the hour, the second hour, we always do our right view round table question and was about the white house correspondence dinner and Trump. You know, I have to say, I think this is a, a big turning point time in American history because for many, many reasons, but one is, the media has never been so directly confronted by a major political figure. You've had the MRC, Media Research Company, Corporation, whoever it is, continually printing things. She, what are you laughing at over there? Okay, Hi, Dorinda. <laughs> <laughs> are you? Are she watching? Hi. Okay. Um, we've had, you know, uh, outlets, conservative outlets criticizing. But this is—it's an amazing thing because it's actually the president— and it has alerted so many more people to media bias who maybe didn't pay attention enough to the news to even think about it. Or they hear people say it like, oh, whatever. So what? But this is kind of like the president pointing it out in this fake news stuff. So it led uh, at the White House Correspondent Center. It led the uh, luminary, Bob Woodward, to say, Mr. President, in his speech, Mr. President, the media is not fake news. First of all. <laughs> who's he to get to say that i mean they, all of them are trying to say you can't say we're fake you can't say we're biased and the thing is america sees it so much i mean i, I jenny i don't know if you said it on air or during the commercial or whatever but you're saying <laughs> who even listened to the white house correspondents exactly. dinner no. they, they just want to keep telling you how they're not biased believe me. And, and they're just and they're becoming irrelevant and they've kind of earned it yes they've earned it okay so turning i want to talk about the climate change uh okay you can't I have to call it what they call it. The People's Climate March, I think it was. The people. Yeah. Anyway, but I want to tell you just a couple of interesting things that happened about that. And then you guys can tell me whatever you have to say about it. But one thing that was very, very funny. If you happen to be a reader or a reader formerly of the Wall Street Journal, they used to have a, a writer named Brett Stevens— and this is a guy who just he has a few conservative views, so he was an editorial writer in wall street journal and then and he was driving conservatives crazy and you know <laughs> i mean just- anyway so Brett Stevens left the wall street journal and his and then moved over to the New York Times and the New York Times said they hired him because they wanted to have a more balanced uh, editorial page. You want to have more balance. You want to bring conservatives in, blah, blah. So Brett Stevens is over there, this quasi-conservative, who who makes the conservatives mad at Wall Street Journal. He goes over to New York Times. His very first column was called Climate of Complete Certainty. Very first column he writes in which he had the audacity on (laughs) the People's Climate March weekend of saying... Don't you think it might be good if we try to you know, make sure we have the facts straight, if we don't feak, speak with such utter and complete certainty all the time, but instead we look at facts and he made the analogy to Hillary Clinton, everybody in the planet thought she was going to win the election, every, and, they were, and every time Bill Clinton even said to, uh, what's the guy's name, Bobby, Robbie Mook, Bill Clinton yeah, even right. said to, to Hillary's advisors, you know, this Brexit vote... It just doesn't look good. This Brexit vote makes me wonder, are you sure about the numbers? Are you sure Hillary's going to win? And the answer he got from MOOC was, the data run counter to your anecdotes. And what his point was is, we're so sure of our numbers and our data, Hillary can't lose. Who cares what you see in the ground? So this writer, Brett Stevens, said the same thing about the climate thing. We speak with such just sanctimonious, self-righteous certainty, you know, People don't – we we could be wrong. He was even – he was just introducing the idea, why don't we look at the numbers? Why don't we reassess the data? Which which caused, which is so darn funny, his very first column, caused numerous people to cancel their subscriptions <laughs> to the New York Times. you got to love it. I mean, you can't make
2: this stuff up. No, you oh, can't.
1: No, you can't. I, uh-huh. I
2: love what Kurt Schlichter said about the left. You know, they hate you. We just have to accept it. Facts are unimportant to them. One of my favorite articles by Kurt Schlichter, he's a lawyer. He's a conservative writer. He's a great guy. Kurt Schlichter, he's funny. So he's talking about the leftists, and when he talks about the uh, environmental leftists, he calls them the pagan weather religion oddballs, convinced (laughs) that the end is near. We must repent by turning in our SUVs. Of course, the we is really us. High priests of the global warming cult, like Leonardo DiCaprio, will still jet around the world with supermodels, while we do the ritual sacrificing of our modern comforts.
3: Exactly right. <laughs> I love that. And- well, you know, it, the thing is, is that I keep seeing all these marches. Okay, we start with the women's march, which was really about women that didn't want Trump, and then we, then we, ha- and, and actually, it wasn't just women; it was anybody who didn't want Trump. And uh, then we have what? We have Global Warming March, or we, no, 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 Science March. That was it. Yeah, last weekend. All all the signs were about Trump, not about let's get more funding for science projects and science programs in our schools. And now it's like global warming. I bet if we look at all the signs, they would always all say, bad Trump. We don't want Trump, you know, and, and somehow make it rhyme. You know, yeah, <laughs> that, is, that is that is something that they do well. But it's just like, seriously, guys.
1: Okay, you know? He, you are so on to something. So I have to tell you, you're exactly right, both you guys. Okay, so George Soros, who actually I tweeted about him this week. George Soros is the uh, guy who, as a child, and he's Jewish, as a child, he posed as a Christian and helped the Nazis collect the belongings of Jewish people that who were then loaded into train cars, shipped off to concentration camps and killed. So he participated in this with the Nazis and years later when interviewed said, they asked him essentially, you know, Mr. Soros, does that, that must have caused you you know years of counseling on the psychiatrist couch? I mean, the, the guilt and the shame. I'm not kidding, folks. His answer was no, no, not at all. No, what I learned from that is, hey, someone had to do it. Someone had to help the Nazis. Might as well be me. The guy no conscience. But George Soros, a uh, billionaire times many. So to your point, Jenny, a minute ago about this march yesterday, the climate, um, Happy People's Climate March, whatever it was called. It should be called the Climate Religion March. But yeah. anyway, George Soros, who heads the Open Society Foundation, contributed over $36 million dollars between 2000 and 2014, to 18 of the 55 organizations on this Climate March's steering committee. Organizations like the NAACP, unrelated to climate. The um, Center for Community Change, unrelated to climate. The, Nat, uh, the uh, Public Citizen and Union of Concerned Scientists, maybe climate-like. They had many groups. Unions. Unions were involved in this march. The point is, this is just all the compensated by George Soros anti-american we hate america we hate everything about this country and george soros george soros is just funding anger and hostility it almost doesn't matter what the issue is the idea that they don't have a socialist in the white house again they don't have someone championing leftist causes there's gonna be march after march after march after march soros funded ferguson the Ferguson riots, he funds Black Lives Matter. He funds everything antithetical to America, including this climate march, which had many inane signs. I'm going to turn to you in a second, but I don't know if you want to say any more about Soros and his involvement and in all this. I was just
3: thinking, Soros reminds me so much of the ultimate villain in a comic book, you know? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously. I mean, with a name like that. Soros. The
2: you know? um, Yeah, exactly. In his baggy eyes.
3: And he lives up to it. (laughs) He lives up to it by thinking that he can throw money at something and get the value out of it. Well, sometimes people have souls, and those souls are not for sale.
1: Yeah, there you go. It's much to his chagrin. Well, I just think this whole notion that – We keep thinking they're serious advocates for climate, and they're unrelated to serious advocates for free college, and they're unrelated to serious advocates for pro-abortion, and they're unrelated to Black Lives Matter. It's all one big left-wing cabal funded by Soros, and they'll all march for any of those issues. Okay, so this closing thing in the environment, I just want to tell you—I can't remember if I sent you guys—I shared this link with you or not, but— Um, And many people ran articles like this, but Walter Williams had one where he's talking about how wrong past environmental predictions have been. Okay, so here we are, you know, climate change, we're all going to die. So back in 1970 when Earth Day was conceived, the late George Wald, who actually is a Nobel Laureate biology professor at Harvard, predicted civilization will end within 15 to 30 years unless mankind takes immediate action against the problems. Also, Paul Ehrlich, Stanford, 1970, same year, Stanford biologist um, had this, um, put out this notion that the world's population would soon outstrip food supplies and talked <clears throat> about within, in the progressive, he said, the death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year Will be starving to death in the next ten years. Said that in 1970. Now, folks, if you don't know, the starvation rate and the you know lack of food rate is going down and down down the world. Unlike what he had to say, Debbie, many can many I more. Say one thing yeah, I'm, we have five seconds. Norman
2: Borlaug saved a billion people. He answered every problem in that population. Yeah. Through science.
1: Through science. Okay, last ones. many, many predictions of we're all going to freeze to death. We're all going to be living, and so now we are as climate change. Folks, there's nothing more to this than lefties want to control the world. The end. Do not go away because we have a great guest coming up.
0: Faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national
4: Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today.
1: If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are tens of thousands of Heritage members and supporters in North Texas alone, and they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage. Experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates on the fight for America from Heritage President Jim DeMint, plus exclusive invitations to conservative events right here in Dallas or wherever you are in America. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility, when politicians propose solutions, to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues, but even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Addis on America Can We Talk? Welcome back to America Can You Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. I have a right-view roundtable. Joining me tonight, Jenny McGarry Mary Sullivan. I believe we have online Stuart Taylor, who is the author of a book, which is up here in my iPad right in front of me, duly highlighted, author of a book called Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. Hello, Mr. Taylor.
7: Hello. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: So glad you're on. Well, I have to tell you, um, so on this show, America, can we talk? We have talked in the past about uh, this issue that your book addresses. We've talked about FIRE, the organization that is was in part formed to deal with these kind of challenges. But I love your book. I love the title of your book, and I would love to know just to start with. So again, the title of the book is "Campus Rape Frenzy: The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities." What's the why'd you call it? Why'd you title it that? What does it mean by "campus rape frenzy"?
7: Well, we uh, we. Threw around a lot of ideas. We thought of uh, campus rape hysteria, but hysteria's got uh, you know connotations yes. of uh, being anti-woman, so that that went out. We thought of campus rape panic, uh, and I uh, decided that that wasn't quite as directly what we were talking about. And then the real message of the title is the subtitle, which is The Attack on Due Process of America's Universities. And that's the trend that the book is uh, most directly aimed at, uh, at trying to counteract and correct because it's a very unhealthy trend.
1: It most certainly is. And I, we've talked with our listeners about this in the past, but I'll let you go ahead, and if you would, and just set the table for us, describe the Dear Colleague letter that kind of kicked off the problem you're talking about.
7: Um, there's been a problem at university discipline for many years, going back at least to the nineteen nineties uh, where among other things uh apart from attacks on free speech uh which are often couched as uh is often couched as one kind or another of harassment sexual harassment, there have been uh claims that all kinds of conduct that would normally pass as you know fairly common consensual sexual conduct is in fact rape or sexual assault, and the colleges have been punishing. Uh, perfectly legal conduct uh, within their disciplinary systems as rape or sexual assault. This got put on steroids in April 2011. You mentioned the Dear Colleague letter. That's a letter that was sent out in April 2011 by the Obama administration's Education Department, and it issued a series of commands illegally, I think, supposedly to enforce Title IX, the anti-discrimination statute, Um, but uh, they didn't have anything to do with discrimination or Title IX. In They amounted to discrimination against males. Uh, They ordered colleges to adjudicate any claim that came to their attention. Uh, of any kind of sexual misconduct uh, made by anyone against anyone it's almost always a woman against a man it's occasionally another a man against another man they ordered them to use the absolute minimal burden of proof uh, f- uh, 50.01% so so when it's basically a toss up whether the evidence suggests the guy's guilty or not he's supposed to be found guilty they they ban cross examination uh of the accuser and uh of other witnesses they don't allow um, uh, enough time to prepare a defense uh they allow appeals uh, by the accusers if the guy somehow is found guilty in spite of having the deck stacked against him I mean I'm sorry found innocent by the initial uh fact finders then the then the woman gets to appeal and often we've seen um, political uh factors come into play during the appeal where administrative uh, university leaders are intimidated either by uh in the past obama administration bureaucrats or by their own campus activists and uh and far left professors uh to uh, basically railroad guys in the face of strong evidence in many cases of innocence. We have about 40 plus, 40 to 50 cases we uh, summarize in our book uh, in greater or lesser detail in which uh, young men who appear to have been innocent uh, were um, kicked out of school and otherwise branded as rapists.
1: You know, I have your, as I mentioned, I have your book here in front of me an iPad, and I can't quickly get back, but I think the first chapter you recount, or even in the introduction, you recount this story at Amherst, and I don't uh, want to get into great detail except to say I think that was very powerful and effective in your book to not just speak in the abstract about what due process and what rights are being diminished but kind of the real life examples in college where you know often alcohol is involved and so people are fuzzy in conveying consent or lack thereof fuzzy in perceiving consent or not and they engage in some sort of form of intimacy which uh later the girl and in the case was it, Amherst? it was it was. Way over a year later before she decided this encounter in her room was not consensual isn 't right isn't That's that right it,
7: it was way over a year later, and it came through a process during which she became radicalized basically the the facts show that she sexually assaulted the guy he was blackout drunk, and she took him back to her room after they 'd been making out publicly in front of people and somebody said why don 't you go get a room so she took him to her room and she um she performed a sexual act on him while he was if not passed out very very drunk she was a little bit drunk by her own account but uh, then she became, she came to regret it. Why did she regret it? Because it was her roommate's boyfriend. The roommate was away, but the word was going to get around that she had seduced, if not assaulted, her roommate's boyfriend. That was going to cause her social problems. So she started putting out the lie that he had sexually assaulted her, and she eventually uh, took it to the point uh, after joining a feminist group that was exercised about uh, alleged rapes on campus. She took it to the point. Of filing a complaint with amherst amherst uh put three uh far left uh professors or administrators uh in charge of the case and uh with minimal attention to the facts the evidence and the detail, and with no effort at all to find the text messages that proved the guy's innocence because the woman was sending text messages throughout this encounter uh that proved his innocence uh they kicked him out and then when he took the text messages to them later and said, look, these prove I'm innocent. They said, sorry, too late. Uh, you can't uh, You can't come back, and we're not going to reopen the case. It was a horrible injustice, a disgraceful, disgusting injustice, and uh, unfortunately not the only one by a long shot.
1: As I said, it was very powerful how you had in your um, book laid out all these examples because they are just uh – I mean, they're they're shocking. And I speak as someone we have three grown kids in their 20s, a girl and two boys. And I, you know, they're all out of college. I want my girl, my daughter to have been protected from actual predators and our sons uh, to be protected from unfairness. And I think that most people would have that perspective. You just in America, you should just want the system to be fair. You you see our justice system, we all, and I'm a lawyer by background. I treasure the idea of the protections we build into our criminal justice system, our entire legal system. And this is kind of it's so removed from reality. It's like putting aside everything we know about what makes the system fair. And it is just, it's, well, use the term in your book, it's like a witch hunt. So I did want to let you hit on, too. You talked in your book a little bit about how the uh, pretense of this rape crisis on campus to start with was based on faulty statistics
7: you bet it was the the lie that's been circulated the myth that's been circulated is that one One woman in five uh, in college uh, is sexually assaulted while there. uh, President Obama spread this around. Uh, Vice President Biden spread this around. uh, uh, The media have spread it around. It's become almost conventional wisdom. Everybody says, oh, yes, everybody knows that. Well, it's totally false. Uh, There are good federal statistics on this, and they would suggest that one in a hundred, perhaps, women in college is raped during her college years, and another two in a hundred, perhaps, are subjected to lesser forms of of sexual assault or misconduct. Uh, You know, some of them very serious and some of them uh, not so serious, but nowhere near one in five. So where did one in five come from? It comes from a succession of agenda-oriented study, uh, surveys taken by organizations that were in the business of trying to hype and exaggerate the scope of the campus rape problem. So one way they do it is by, you know, they have very small Uh, statistical samples of people responding to these things, i.e. people motivated to make a big deal of it. Uh, They ask questions that they don't ask the women, were you raped or were you sexually assaulted, because they know perfectly well that almost all of them would say no. They ask them, did you ever have sex when you were drunk? And if the answer to that is yes, they check it down as a rape. Did you ever, uh, were you ever kissed when you didn't want to be kissed in a forcible way. Uh, if that, the answer is yes, they chalk that down as a sexual assault. And through that and other uh, techniques of falsification, uh, this myth has been created. Another myth Is that almost all guys accused of rape are guilty? Uh, I can't tell you what the percentage is, but it's far from almost all. We've seen many, many, many cases of false accusations, and many others in the colleges where the the accusations weren't really false. It's just that they didn't. The the guy wasn't accused of anything illegal. He was accused uh, by a woman, let's say, of having sex, which he regretted later, while both of them were drunk. And guys get kicked out based on that now the woman isn't lying there they were drunk they did have sex but the college is lying in a sense when they put a brand on this guy as a sex criminal and kick him out of school based on a uh, very commonplace behavior
1: absolutely Stuart. i gotta <laughs> jump in can you hold on during our break sure okay come right back to america can we talk Debbie george Addis jenny McGarry, maria sullivan don't go away
4: On August 2, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son Mark Allen Lee had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the heroes' hope home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit America's Mighty Warriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. Hi, this is Debbie
1: Georgiadis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility, when politicians propose solutions, to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues, but even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiadis on America Can We Talk.
0: Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas for 27 years. The Texas public policy foundation has helped leaders in the lone star state prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas public policy foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise and personal responsibility, whether informed,
8: There is a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers, it's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield.
6: And welcome back. I'm Debbie George
1: addis and this is America Can We Talk. And we have online with us the author of a new book, author of of excuse me, Campus Rape Frenzy, Due Process at America's Universities, Stuart Taylor. Okay, so Stuart on the break. The three of us in here are trying to discuss who uh, which question should go next. And we all want to chime in. But you mentioned in your book, and actually Mari brought it up on the break too, that this dear colleague there that came out of the Obama administration Seem to have a political motivation because it came out shortly after the Democrats lost in their midterms in 2010, and it has some. You describe in your book some political motivation behind it. Can you describe that?
7: Yes, we think so. Um, after the Democrats were decimated in the 2010 congressional elections, uh, there's clear history that the president's political advisors, President Obama's, including uh, 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 David. Um, uh, Platt, uh, Plotkin, I think, uh, and others uh, said that the right strategy for winning in 2012, which was very important to Obama, of course, was to energize the Democratic base voters, the most committed, the most radical, the most fervent voters, and those included uh, immigration. And so that brought on uh, a much more uh, liberal immigration policy in which the president, by executive order, uh, decreed things that he previously said he couldn't do without an act of Congress. And it also included Energizing campus feminists who are a very po- powerful uh, Democratic constituency, radical feminists on and off campus, and especially those activists who think that all men are sexual predators, or almost all men, and all women, or almost all women, are victims of sexual predators, and who, in order to get those people fired up that the Obama administration was doing what they wanted, the Obama administration did what they wanted. And its Office of Civil Rights and the Education Department laid down suddenly, without warning, out of the blue all these very draconian rules uh, that are clearly illegal, and they didn't go through the normal regulatory process to do it. Even though they're clearly illegal in my view, uh, most colleges are too terrified of the power the education department has to take away their federal money to challenge them.
1: Absolutely. We're all nodding along. It's like, it's too bad you're not here in the studio. We have fun in the studio, but I'm really nodding along, and I could not agree more. It really played into the... Um, what the the groups that President Obama had to get motivated to uh, win election in 2012. Okay. Sorry, so, I was
7: fumbling for the name. I meant David Axelrod. Political I
1: thought, thought it was Axelrod. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say that. Okay. Yeah. So here's the other thing I wanted to kind of entirely switch. So I think everyone would agree that there are certain conduct that occurs on campuses that, you know, it may be criminal in nature related to sexual relations. And so, you know, you certainly have every college within the United States of America, has some district attorney or, you know, ability to turn to the criminal justice system where we have protections in place for the accused and for the accuser. And so there should be that we should pursue that route for anything that constitutes a crime or possible crime. So then you have, though, on ca- college campuses, the combination of the hookup culture, uh, excessive alcohol, a lot of drugs, And a lot of campuses work very hard at the front end, especially freshman year orientation. They try to talk to kids about understanding, you know, you're on your own and the consequence of intimacy and and seeking consent and being sure you have consent and being responsible and and all those kind of things. But do you think uh, if we didn't have what uh, President Obama ended up causing to be in place, is there some I mean, is there some role college administration should have to regulate conduct that doesn't arise to the level of criminal prosecution, but is harassing in some way toward women. Uh, And and so, I mean, I, I I really feel like I just want them to stop doing this. Either crime happened or it didn't. But do you think there's some role colleges should play for the behaviors in between crime and nothing at all?
7: It's a good question, and it's a difficult question, and here's why. I would have said, of course, before I did all the work, for this uh, book. there, You know, you shouldn't have to be committing a crime for the college to discipline somebody for, you know, really reprehensible sexual behavior. Let's say, you know, um, taking advantage of, of a young woman or, or anyone else for that matter who's not quite passed out drunk, not quite totally uh, incapacitated, but pretty darn drunk and not able to make firm decisions. That, That's not a crime. Um, but Ideally, should be could be punished. The problem is the colleges has demonstrated they're utterly incompetent and utterly biased in such cases. And so, um, instead of seeing them, you know, judiciously handle cases like the one I just hypothesized, they take cases where the guy really did nothing wrong at all, or or where both parties were drunk, and they magnify them into. Uh, pseudo-sex crimes, and they kick people out for this, if there could be a way devised uh, for the colleges to protect due process and, you know, and make sure that the people they're punishing did what they're being punished for, and uh, not brand them as sex criminals. Part of the problem here is that the colleges uh, directly or indirectly label as rape or sexual assault, conduct that they know perfectly well is not rape or sexual assault under the usual definitions. If they called it, say, sexual harassment uh, and that fit a non-criminal offense, it wouldn't be nearly the stigmatizing uh, curse for the rest of the guy's life, but the colleges have shown that they are incapable of doing this right, and unless the education department lays down a whole set of news rules that prevents them, you know, that requires fairness and due process for everybody involved in the process, uh, I think they should be out of this business.
1: Couldn't agree more, and I'm I'm so glad you said that. You know, first of all, if you just tuned in, you missed a great interview, folks. We're speaking with Stuart Taylor, author of Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's University. Sir, it's a great book. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for writing it.
7: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Okay, folks, so we have just – we're at our last – I can't believe how time flies out here, this uh, time warp machine out here. I always – I need to, uh, in this segment, thank the sponsor of our show, GC Works, is a Dallas-based company that performs research in advanced technology and delivers innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry, and that, my friends – is a sponsor for GC for America. Can we talk? I'm so very grateful for GC Works. Okay, I have just a few minutes left. And I, we, I, you know, I, he was so interesting to talk to, and you both were looking at things to say. and I don't want to shut you off, so I don't know what he wants to chime in on that. I just am glad that
2: his book is hitting the shelves because this is an outrage that these due process rights, if you can take due process rights away from anybody, for a political reason, we don't live in the great American country that protects individual rights and freedom. And that's exactly what the Office of Civil Rights did under Obama for political reasons. It's outrageous.
3: I, I just look at due process. Why is due process being discussed in the same sentence as a university? I mean, the, the, the universities are there to educate. Due process has to do with our legal system. And this is, a, this is like trying to say that this small – this plot of land doesn't belong to the rest of the United States? Well, every university I know actually belongs within the state and has to follow particular guidelines, rules, and legalities. Due process is not something for campuses to determine. It's something for our legal system in the United States of America to determine.
1: Absolutely. And you know, we've been turned this term due process and I meant to have some examples. There isn't really a lot it wasn't a lot of time, but you know, the idea basically is we have laws in this country that uh, protect people, and this due process idea, it balances the power of the law of the land, and the individual um, protects him from that power by having certain steps we agree the exact course of law must be followed in the case in these particular cases. Young man's accused of something that turns into what they're claiming a sexual assault. He can't cross examine her. He can't, he can't go back and say, Hey, I never, I couldn't get her text messages, but now that I have them, look what's happened. And the last thing that the, uh, this author, Stuart Taylor, alluded to, which is so important to recognize is so the young man, I mean, there's been cavalier statements out of the Office of Civil Rights uh, in Washington about, well, look, he didn't go to jail. Nothing bad happened. He just got kicked out. If you're a young man and you're kicked out, of a university in this country for rape, sexual assault, something along those lines. What do you think your chances are of getting into another good university? What are your chances of getting a job? What are your chances of doing anything you want to do? It is life-changing, and this is the power, and I'm so glad Mari raised in the break, you know, this idea recognizing this whole thing came up because President Obama needed to galvanize the left-wing mob, who is now thoroughly galvanized under President Trump. But you know, galvanize them on mm-hmm. campuses just to say, "Hey, we are going to um, get everyone stirred up as we can." And and you end up having these these. I mean, if you folks, you got to read this book. He describes cases where you know you're, the panel, even the one representing, if the guy even has any attorney or, or representative at all, is some left-wing nut job. And they, I actually discovered something reading this. Book. Did you know you can get a doctorate? I'm not kidding. A doctorate in social justice. I uh-huh. said just some of these goofballs who are overseeing these hearings. That is their educational criteria. They're not investigators. They're not uh, lawyers. They're not you know certified detectives. They are like you know people who are in left wing la la land all the time. A doctorate in social justice, and that's who is sitting in judgment of our young of the young people in these ca- cases. I mean, that was in one particular campus' case. Two of the three involved in the judgment. And actually, the other thing that we didn't get into, I forgot to ask him about, but Obama, the preference in this Dear Colleague letter and the regulations following it, is that one person, one person, be the one who receives the complaints, investigates, holds the hearing, and issues the decision. Once
2: people in America, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, realize what is happening in these back situations on campus, they would call for these regulations to be. It, it's 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 for the Conve- Congressional Review Act. I'm really hoping that Betsy DeVos takes action to stop this because nobody should have this kind of due process um, rights taken away. Because, as you said, Debbie, they're not going to jail because it's uh, not a criminal matter, but their life has changed dramatically. It's a resume killer. It's a resume killer. They've got the scarlet letter. Yeah, You know, their character is impugned. And so there is a system of criminal justice that looks at this very seriously, looks at the facts, looks at the accused side, the accuser side, and justice takes time. It's a long process, and it's just ridiculous. These are called kangaroo courts for a good reason.
1: They are okay, folks. I, I hope you were here for the interview. We just uh, hung up speaking with Stuart Taylor, office of this uh, author of this co-author of a book called, um, called "The Campus Rape Frenzy," and it, it addresses the just just un- unacceptable uh, depriving of due process rights of our of um, students in America and college campuses. I want to thank Dr. Van Skin calling in the first hour. Talk about. Obama's, uh, Obama, Trump's budget. This America Can We Talk. Tune in every week. Love talking to you because we talk truth about America.
0: Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk, Truth About America.